What's up, people? Welcome to another episode of the Talk Louder podcast, where we ask you, as always, to please hit that subscribe button on the YouTube channel. Leave us your likes and comments. We love hearing from you. You can also find us on Spotify, iTunes, and Facebook. I'm Metal Dave Glessner with my co-host, Jason McMaster. And today we are going to spend some time. Jason and I went combing through our respective record collections, and we wanted to spend some time today talking about some albums uh, that we enjoy and think are worthy of some love and attention, but maybe aren't always mentioned in the same breath with British Steel, Back in Black, Peace of Mind. You get the picture. We're broadening our horizons a little bit today. Uh, And we'll get to all that in just a minute. But first, as always, Jason, how are you? What's up? I am good. Uh, I... uh... You know, I've been saying uh, in some of our intros and in, in these Talk Louder episodes, oh, you know, some more home improvement. Well, I have to confess, uh, more home improvement. Uh, I built, I, I installed a hot water heater that uh, is has plumbing that goes to my swimming pool, uh, which is really nice, warms up the water in the pool perfectly. Uh, but so, you know, against the wall of the shed outside is there's a freaking water heater <laughs> on, on a cement slab, but you know, there's a water heater in my backyard, just da, 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 da. So I had to build a, uh, shed extension and or a closet. I'd build walls around the water heater. So I've been doing that little insulation, wow. little. So, you know, yeah, some plumbing, some electrical, some carpentry. Cheers. That's what yeah. I've been doing. Also, I have one more. Did you want to comment on my my Home Depot run? Yeah, I was just going to call you a regular Tim Allen for those who remember the show Home Depot. Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> See? Oh, oh. <laughs> yeah. Uh, of course. Um, but I remember all that from his stand-up, not so much his TV show. I remember him from his stand-up comedy days. Uh, yeah. The tool time or whatever the hell that TV show was. Stand up was probably better than the TV show. Oh my God. Yeah. It was, it was R rated X rated and shit. So listen, uh, I have, I have something I get, I have to get something off my chest. I watched, I'm thinking it was an older episode of Saturday night live. Yeah. That was on before the news and then Saturday Night Live, you know, the, the the new episode, if they have one, comes on afterwards, after the news. I won't even, don't even get me started on the, the new one. But the, the older one, I guess that maybe a year old, two years old, something like that. Uh, you know, I, uh, sorry, I got to plug in my computer. Had to plug in my computer. Sorry, guys. So, all right. Last night, Saturday Night Live, it was an older episode. The musical artist, I don't remember this young person's name. Um, I will say this. He had John Mayer on guitar. Yeah. But it wasn't. It was some kind of weird hip-hop thing. But it wasn't hip-hop to me. It was John Mayer, this... Long-haired bass player guy that looked like he could have been, you know, Black Sabbath or something. And two synthesizer guys, no drummer. And then just randomly off to, like, stage right was 
a spinning hobby horse, not a merry-go-round, but a horse that's from a merry-go-round full size yeah. on a platform that's spinning around. You know, it's got the pole and it's got the big giant hobby horse thing. Okay. And then there is a good-looking young lady just standing there, getting on the horse, riding the horse, just hanging out, leaning against it, almost voguing, no backup singing, not playing an instrument, just hanging out there, looking good. And she was doing a great job at all of the above, hanging around, hobby horse spinning around, kick-ass lighting, fog machine. Stage looked awesome. Yeah. Here's my pet peeve. This artist, in the hip-hop artist, I, I'm just going to call it the standard, had the crooked flat brim baseball hat yeah. had the puffy jacket it you know all of the he had he he like went to the mall to the hip-hop store and got all of the you know like i go to hot topic or whatever <laughs> so that's not the problem that i have that he had an excellent guitar player and john mayer and a bass player who was playing like a, a like a beetle bass like a Hoffman. Yeah, Hoffner. Hoffner, yeah. There you go. I don't know if it was a it was a Hoffner, but it yeah, looked like a Beatle bass, like Paul McCartney made popular. Here's my issue. Sorry this is taking forever. Dude, <laughs> what up with the auto-tune? Let me tell you how auto-tune works, and then someone else can bitch at me, correct me, whatever it is. Uh 99% of the vocals that I do in the past, like 20 years, have been produced by Jared, who's producing this show right now. He knows what my voice sounds like. I don't know if he's ever used auto-tune, but I highly doubt it. I usually don't send him anything or cut anything that is so out of whack that it needs some kind of, you know, one note needs an auto-tune. If it's one note, let's let it fucking fly. <laughs> okay, so in the new world, auto-tune, because auto-tune's been around a long time now. Yeah. And auto-tune, yeah, Jared says, nope, never used auto-tune on your voice. Thank you, Jared. So <laughs> this kid, and I, I guess I'll call him a kid because he's probably half my age, has got the auto-tune turned all the way up. Now, a lot of like uh, like new millennial music, whether it be, doesn't matter what it is, they use auto-tune, and a lot of them use it as an effect. I know Kanye uses it as an effect. Yeah. So here's the deal. This this kid is, you know, he's, he's his mic is live. You know, he's... But, you know, if he's going... Because it's that mumble rap shit, right? Yeah. He's doing that. And then there's a part where there's a melody like, you know, he's having to do a thing. I'm doing it terrible on purpose because he's doing it terrible. I Not guarantee it. <laughs> right. Not on purpose, but he doesn't have to do any work. Other than write the, I'll just go on a limb and say, really shitty song. He has to write the song and perform the song and go to the hip-hop hot topic, you know. Yeah. Get his gear, right? Yeah, Shopping at the, the song. Mall. Did he even write the song? 
We don't know. I would hope so because it wasn't good. But here's the cool thing. He had John Mayer on guitar. That guy can play guitar. Yeah. yeah. But I didn't hear any guitar. That's what was wrong. That was another thing wrong with the song. I could see, you know, I could hear. But it's almost like he's just like doing these sound drops and whammy bar stuff and, you know, ethereal little backing things, right? Remember, no drummer. No drummer. Yeah. Synth guys just making racket. And there's some kind of like fake drum loop going on, whatever. So he's not doing anything. As, fa- as a matter of fact, since auto tune is cranked all the way up, it just sounds like, you know, his voice just sounds like a, synth- a synthetic robot voice. Yeah. So I was talking to my wife. I go, imagine if the auto tune was turned off. Here's what I think you would hear. And then then the the melodic part. Like a moan. And then here's how autotune works. It takes what it thinks the key you're trying to sing in and fixes it. Yeah. Hence the name of the plugin or the application that studios will use to just you know fix little things but they don't turn it all the way up yeah to turn it all the way up and sing to it is to sort of it's like one of those vocoders you know planet rock you know like the you know like 70s like you know that's a different effect but it's you know it's like robot voice on purpose right yeah oh my god okay rant over what's up <laughs> Well, um, I, I think there's, you know, you see a lot of that on TV these days. Um, and I, I guess it's just the, the, where we are with pop, popular music or whatever. But uh, I'll tell you, I uh, had uh, kind of the opposite listening experience. <laughs> uh, I recently acquired, a, yeah, right. I recently acquired a vinyl copy of the Nazareth album, No Mean City. And, uh, wow, I, uh, I have a confession to make. Um, I don't own any Nazareth and I know that's shame on me. Uh, but, um, I, I need to build my collection, but I started with that one because I found it at the record store. It was, you know, reasonably priced in decent condition. And, uh, the, the artwork was rad. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, I've been giving that a spin and, uh, you know, talk about, uh, let's, let's talk about a real voice, Dan McCafferty. Yes. Um, oh my God, man, that guy, you know, and I've heard Nazareth songs before, obviously I just don't have the albums and I haven't really explored the deep cuts, but, uh, that guy's really got a gift and it's, it's a, it's a very unique sounding voice, very raw, very, uh, raspy and, uh, and it's perfect. It's a perfect rock and roll voice, but he's got so much control over it. You know, he's, he's really is a great singer. He just has all these rough edges around his voice, but that's exactly what makes it so great. So I've been listening to that. Um, just, you know, barely got a toe in the water on that one, but I'm liking what I've heard so far and I'm looking forward to building my, uh, my Nazareth library. Awesome. Well, uh, I second that 
um, you know, it's obvious that most everyone knows the record Hair of the Dog. Right. Uh, speaking of Nazareth, wow, this is a killer segue. There, sorry our intro is so long, but I guess that's okay because of the topic that we're going to talk about. But um, yours truly uh, is on a Nazareth tribute album. I saw something Did about you see? That. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Jeff Pincus is on it. Uh, Writer. Uh, Joe, what? Writer from Nashville Pussy. Yep, she's on it. Yeah. Uh, Blaine's on it, also Blaine. Nashville. Yep. Uh, Joey Killingsworth put this thing together, and uh, he's in the... Uh, God, what's the name of that? He's got a cool band name. I can't remember. Uh, it's like something like the Brian Jonestown Massacre. That's it. Yeah. yeah. And uh, so he's behind it. And the guitarist from Nazareth actually plays on some tracks on it. I saw that, yeah. And uh, the song that I did is uh, Changing Times. That's from Hair of the Dog. Cool. When does that come out? No idea. They're, I think you can pre-order right now. So you already cut the vocals? Oh, two years ago. <laughs> Well, we'll have to look forward to, uh, we'll have to look for that. Uh, I saw the lineup, the roster of people that are uh, on that record, and it looks like a, a real uh, cool cast of characters, you included. So uh, what is it What is it called? Is it called? I, I can't remember. We'll have to do some research on it again. Yeah, we'll, we'll come back to that one. Cause I was actually, when, when, it, when, it, when Joey actually posted the ad for it and how to order and all that stuff, it just kind of popped up and I was like, what? 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 Oh, yeah, I'm on this thing. That's how <laughs> long ago, Dave, that's how long ago I cut the vocal. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, we'll have to look forward to that. Um, yeah, cool. I guess you can't go wrong with Nazareth. Uh, that's what I'm learning, uh, exploring the deep cuts on this one album that I finally have, and I look forward to uh, exploring some more. So can't go wrong with Dan McCaffrey. Yeah, how would, you, how would you categorize that? How would you categorize just Nazareth when you think of Nazareth and not necessarily Hair of the Dog? Like, you're starting to feather out a little bit. What? How would you put that in a, in a box? I, I just... I just consider it hard rock. And, you know, it's it's funny because when I was listening to that album, I could hear uh, I could hear sort of shades of like Rose Tattoo and, you know, Nazareth and Rose Tattoo. There there was that kind of there was that there was that subgenre or subcategory of hard rock bands that weren't necessarily all over the radio. Uh, you know, Nazareth had some hits, but um but they have a different sound than hard rock bands. Like, you know, when I say hard rock, you tend to think of ACDC or Ted Nugent or something like that. But there's something more barroom or something more gritty or something more pub rock about. Yeah. It's like Rose Tattoo and Nazareth. And that's, that's right. hearing. Yeah, that's right. Um, like the, like early, early ACDC with Bond, maybe until, until Highway, you know, um, yeah. cause Highway had, had radio power. 
And I think a lot of those, a lot of the early ACDC was definitely more of a pub rock, heavily based in blues. And I, not to put words in your mouth because I asked you, but it's basically a blues band, and then you just turn up the devil. Yeah. You yeah. Know what I mean? And if there's a devil knob on the amps, those guys are starting to turn them up in a couple places. So I think that I think that um, you know, um, you're onto something. But I I, I feel like uh, it's kind of stoner. Nazareth. Nazareth. Nazareth yeah. has has more has more stoner to it, or even like. Uh, they go more like things that would lean into a Sabbath or even a Zeppelin sometimes of a riff or a groove. Yeah, there there might be elements of of like a psychedelic kind of vibe, which I think is kind of what you're describing. But there's more a- Sabbath. If Sabbath is psychedelic, then yeah. Yeah, yeah, but uh, but yeah, that's a. I'm glad you asked that question because I I did make a mental note to myself when I was listening to it, thinking. This kind of reminds me of, you know, style, stylistically and, and the tones and everything kind of reminds me of Rose Tattoo. And it was just, and they came out, you know, in that mid to late 70s period where the hard rock radio bands had a different sound. And the bands that we're talking about were much more like, I think pub rock is kind of, you know, it's yeah. almost like blues based pub hard rock slash borderline heavy metal or something like that yeah i agree but but the tinges of heavy metal and stoner rock and you know the zeppelin style and even just the acdc style and the led zeppelin style it, there's there's a lot to choose from yeah. plus they do covers every once in a while i think they've done like a Joni mitchell song they, uh, my white bicycle. I want to say that's like a Joni Mitchell song. I don't know. Correct me if I'm wrong, but they do uh, covers once in a while. Well, you one know, of their uh, biggest hits was a cover. I mean, that's right. That's right. That's yeah. That's exactly right. So, anyway, um, yeah. Let's let's get into our main topic. We are talking about random albums from our respective collections, uh, albums that Jason and I uh, love and enjoy and think are pretty solid from start to finish. Uh, The caveat here is that these albums are not going to be some of the more obvious stuff you would suspect from us. You know, everybody knows that Jason and I are big Iron Maiden, Judas Priest, ACDC fans. And uh, for the sake of uh, broadening the conversation a little bit, we're going to go maybe a layer deeper and uh, just share some of our favorites from our collection. Jason, I'll start with you. What you got? I don't really know where to start. And, you know, this was as easy as it was difficult uh, to just sort of like what comes to the top of my... This is kind of how I did it. I didn't go peruving. I didn't like you know, close my eyes and spin around three times and light a candle and (laughs) say hail Satan or anything like that. I just really thought about my childhood and what records were, you know, I didn't read comic books. I liked comic books, but I didn't sit around and collect them or read them or anything like that. Yeah. Um, by the time I was ready to do stuff like that, it was music. It was it was music. 
um, you know, from like fourth grade, you know, it was, it was records. Yeah. Um, I want to go back. I have to go back as far back as I can and probably say, uh, and it's good because uh, I'll be getting this one out of the way. These are all emotional records for me, by the way. Perfect. Yeah. Perfect. Um, Elton John, you know, like the babysitter across the street that used to watch me and Randy, my younger brother, uh, you know, when my, you know, my parents were out, right? Uh, if they were going to be out late or whatever. And, you know, it was kind of, I think I've told the story in an earlier episode of Talk Louder where it was like, you know, babysitters playing records and i'm going wow what is that that's cool and it's like yeah it's elton john check it out and i'm looking at the album cover and it was probably uh goodbye yellow brick road you know it's a double album there's a ton of songs on it it's got cool artwork um and it's kind of glammed out you know what i mean and and um i didn't know the term glammed out when I was that age, of course, but it was, you know, it, there was a lot going on. I was like, wow, this is, this is different kind of thing. So I decided that I was a, an Elton John fan then and there. And, uh, you know, I looked up to my older brothers and, and, uh, the babysitter, Susan Raymond was, a few years older about you know probably my uh, my brother joe's age if you you know five years older than me something like that and um i started looking for elton john records and i i don't remember the 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 you know from what record to to you know in, in the order of choice that i ended up with yeah um, because there's a live record called Here and There that's almost like a greatest hits that had some stuff that I hadn't heard yet on it. There was, uh, you know, Caribou. There was, anyway, when I finally got to Captain Fantastic and the Brown Dirt Cowboy, I thought I was listening, the first song is the title track. I thought I was listening to a country album in my small brain i was i was like okay well you know i've heard acoustic guitar before and i've heard country music before because my parents listen to you know country music and then this is real country music that they're listening to right and you know lawrence welk was on television every week and every once in a while we watched it and it was kind of a variety show it was really terrible but um <laughs> didn't have much for me you know right so i heard i heard big, some big band or what i thought was big band and and my parents also had some some records that were you know uh singer songwriter kind of stuff you know and that's how this was coming across but i started following the lyrics and this artwork is incredible I don't know if you've seen the artwork for Captain Fantastic. Oh, yeah. Not even going to shove it in the camera because it, the camera will break. <laughs> um, 
this record means a whole lot to me. I have part of the back. It's the album. The 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 vinyl was a gatefold. Yeah. And it had photos. You know, Bernie Taupin is the the songwriting partner that Elton used the lyrics. He wrote all the lyrics, and then pictures of the band. Um, and you know a lot, a lot of a uh, lot of you know credits and things to read. Uh, produced by a guy named Gus Dungeon that I would later on meet, and I have a story about how I met Gus Dungeon. Um, so uh, this thing blew my mind. Artwork, um, part of the artwork, and it's some of it's from the front, and some of it's from the back, and some of it's from the lyric book that was included in the album. Like it had a poster, by the way. This gatefold had a poster. Be, like I said, the artwork was so kick-ass. Yeah. They knew the label was like, oh, we got to put a poster inside the record. So it had a poster. It had a lyric book, which is not something you see. Like Kiss Records didn't even have a lyric book. This is a. It was a. It was like a as big as a magazine, but it was you know it was thin, so it could still fit in the sleeve, right? right. Um. I have tattoos of this art. Some yeah. of them you can peeking out, like this rat fink guy. You can't really see him. And I've got, I've got one on each inner shoulder. They're facing yeah. each other, and uh, these little rat fink guys have snakes for fingers. Yep. And they're each holding them out, and they have rings on them and stuff. And he's holding them out these snakes, right? And one of the songs on here is called uh, "Writing." Like writing songs, yeah? Yeah. And then there's also a song called Bitter Fingers. And the chorus says it's hard to write a song with bitter fingers. <laughs> so it takes your mind to like his place and where they probably weren't, they could probably be toxic, you know, and not, <laughs> not get along all the time if they're locked in a room together trying to write a record. Because remember... Are a, a very huge uh, something popular on Talk Louder is we always say in the old days you were writing or you were touring, yeah. You were recording or you were writing or you were touring or you were recording or you were writing. There was no rest at all. So yeah. I would imagine that you know you party hard, you play hard, you're gonna wake up tired, you're gonna be mad at each other sometimes. So. Yeah, bitter fingers. I, I actually love that, and I love those rat fink guys well enough to get them tattooed on my inner shoulders. Now, I'm not gonna go bare chested to do this, but <laughs> from the the bottom of my neck down to my junk is this massive tattoo of a lady inside of a Venus flytrap. Right. Right. She is holding a fan, like, you know, like a, like the old school fan yeah. uh, in front of her face. And on painted on this fan is a sparrow, a sparrow's head, like a bird head. The other hand is like reaching and like she's kind of holding open the Venus flytrap, right? very it's kind of vaginal looking this venus flytrap thing and it looks a cactus you know it's, it looks like it's got teeth kind of thing and 
you notice that her the hand that she's reaching, you know, to to grab the edge of the of the Venus flytrap and the hand that's holding the fan, they're both left hands. Uh-huh. <laughs> she has two left hands. Wow. I don't know the significance behind that. There has to be some kind of lore behind that. Um, and that always freaked me out. Obviously, I've st been studying this album art my entire life. Yeah. So I, I love it so much. Now, this, back to the songs. Tower of Babel is is exactly what you think it is. It's party time in the Tower of Babel. Sodom meet Gomorrah, Cain meet Abel. I'm not reading lyrics. I'm, I know the lyrics. Yeah. Have yeah. a ball, y'all see the ledgers crawl with the call girls under the table. Watch them dig their graves. Nice. Yeah. Toppin. Jesus, Jesus don't save the guys in the Tower of Babel. Okay. Um, that freaked me out, <laughs> you know, when I was young. Yeah. Um, some of this almost sounds like boogie and country and uh, most of it's just rock. Yeah. Uh, the, the hit on this is someone saved my life tonight. Now that's on all the greatest hits albums, right? Everybody knows that song. Yeah. Uh, there's a song called Better Off Dead. Uh, has nothing to do with uh, the John Cusack movie that has Van Halen in it. <laughs> Everybody wants a... Right. <laughs> pretty, pretty sure that Van Halen song is in that movie. Anyway, um, there's some really uh, emotional moments on this. The final track, the last song, is called Curtains. And it is, I almost tear up just thinking about the track. Yeah. Uh, uh, it's, uh, it's about growing up. It's about change. It's about death. It's about life. Uh, there's one line in it where he's talking about uh, where, you know, this is, they don't, I don't think people do this anymore, but... When you were childhood friends or, you know, if you had a girlfriend, you'd carve her name in the tree. Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. That big deal. And then you go back like 100 years later and it's still there. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's kind of a thing, right? Yeah. And, uh, you know, if you, if you end up, uh, you know, falling in love and getting married and then you lose your loved one to, you know, whatever – uh, and you go back to that tree, see what I mean? How can you not, that's serious business. Yeah. Because you're tugging on things that music tugs on, or it's supposed to, right? Yeah. Because if it doesn't tug on those things, uh, it should be easy to ignore. Right. Your turn, Dave. Yeah. Uh, good choice, Elton John, Captain Fantastic. Um, my... My first choice right off the bat is uh, Cool From The Wire by Dirty Looks. Yeah. That album to me is a grand slam. And it's, uh, I mean, it's a masterpiece in my opinion. And it's a shame that it didn't get a little more recognition because it's really, really good. And start to bottom, that thing is just a banger. 
um, people probably know the song Oh Ruby. That was the single uh, from the record. Came out in 1988 and um, drew a lot of comparisons to ACDC for pretty obvious reasons. Uh, if you don't know the band and you're listening uh, to the podcast and you're a fan of ACDC, you want to explore Dirty Looks, um, Henrik Ostergaard, the lead singer and uh, rhythm guitarist in the band, had a very Bond Scottish type of voice. And for me, he's got one of the greatest rock and roll voices ever. He's just, it just oozes attitude. He, he, uh, I want to, I want to jump in real quick. He also sounded like he was a mix of like what I always thought of like this dose of like Udo Dirk Snyder and Bon yeah. Scott. Yeah. There's a little Udo yeah. in there. It's very, yeah. it's very raspy and gargly and, and uh, sandpapery, but, but it, it cleans up at times too. You know, it's he's got this sort of like massage of things going on. It's almost Aerosmithy too. Yeah, I mean, it's, any of the, any of those singers that had a rasp to their voice, he had rasp times ten, and it and it just worked so well. And the album uh, again, it's called Cool from the Wire. It came out in 1988, and. Uh, the song Ruby was the single, but there's a song on there can't, called uh, Can't Take My Eyes Off You, I Put a Spell on You. Uh, it's, just, it's just a great, great hard rock album. And one of the things I like about the album is uh, uh, Paul Lydell, who's the lead guitarist on that record and subsequently left uh, Dirty Looks to join your band, Dangerous Toys, um, I was talking to him one time about this record and I said, what is it about the way Gene Barnett plays the drums? Because the way the drums sound on this record are one of the things that makes it. it and it's, I said, you know, I'm not a musician, so I didn't know if I was using the right lingo. And I said, it sounds to me like he's playing behind the beat. And Paul said, that's exactly what it is. And because he's slightly behind, it adds more punch to the songs. And I just love the way that he plays because he's not he's not a necessarily a technical drummer. He's he's fairly simple, but because of his sense of timing and the way that he puts the snare just a little bit behind on the beat, it adds so much more punch to the song. And then you got Henrik with the voice, and it just makes for this really explosive sound. And it's just a great hard rock record. I just, I, I love it. And I was fortunate enough to see them live back in 1988 in San Antonio. And uh, little did I know that many years later that, you know, Paul Lydell would be a buddy of mine and he, you know, he was connected to you through Dangerous Toys. And that, that record was kind of hard to find on vinyl. Um, you could find the CD, but I had a birthday a few years ago and I had a, a bunch of people showed up at this local bar and kind of, you know, it was kind of a birthday party gathering kind of thing. And our, our buddy Johnny Venom brought me a vinyl copy of Cool from the Wire. And I was just like, oh, my God, dude, this is awesome. And then a few minutes later, Paul Lydell shows up at the party and autographed it for me. So <laughs> that was really cool. Anyway, Cool from the Wire by Dirty Looks. That's my first pick for today. And it's a it's a great, great, great hard rock record. Yeah, I uh, 
I have some insight, as you could maybe imagine. I don't know. Maybe you can't imagine, but uh, 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 eyes can't take my eyes off of you. Henrik hated that song. Never, uh, never played live. I love that song. Didn't want to put it on the album. The the label said the deal's off unless you put that on the record. Oh, I love that song. I I, I like uh, put a spell on you. There's that little breakdown. Uh, in the song when Henrik comes, it kind of goes quiet and Henrik goes, abracadabra, baby, <laughs> you know, and it's just, and that voice, the way he says it, you know. Oh, yeah. Like, Setting up the solo. I, um, uh, they open with that. Well, uh, I have a story. The first time I met Paul Idell was, uh, we were starting a tour of the toys. We were starting a tour of the LA Guns and Tora Tora at the Austin Opera House. And uh, the same night, that was October 11th, 1989. And uh, it was Cool from the Wire tour. So, scenario, I'm at the Opera House and uh, I think Tora Tora had just started playing. And I checked out a couple songs or whatever. It was the beginning of the tour. You know, I just met everybody, right? So I, I decided to walk back to go to the dressing room. And I open, uh, there's a side door that goes to a hallway that also leads back to the dressing room areas. And uh, the commons, I guess. And, uh, and I open this side door. And Paul Idell and Jack Pyers from Dirty Looks are standing side by side like Tweedledee and Tweedledum looking, looking at me. And I'm like, with my mouth open, I was, oh, I was so excited. <laughs> I was like, holy <laughs> shit. Yeah. You're Paul and you're Jack. What the, you know what I mean? And I think they sort of probably not as nerdy as me, but they reacted similarly and they're, I'm like, what, what are you guys doing? And they're like, we're here to see you. And I go, well, me and every, we're, everyone here is planning on, as soon as the toys are done, we're going to maybe watch one or two LA Gun songs because we'd be assholes if we didn't, you know, watch. The, it's a brand new tour. We just met these dudes, you know. Yeah. Because uh, we're going to be on the road with them for six weeks. Uh, well, we're all planning on going to the back room and seeing you guys. We love you guys. And uh, Max Norman produced the first uh, Dangerous Toys album solely, in my opinion, because, well, not, you know, there's, he did this song called Crazy Train, okay, yeah. somebody, you know, knows what that is. But also, he did Cool From The Wire. Yep, sure did. Rewind a little bit. Earlier that year, I'm in San Antonio with the Toys playing a gig pre-signing. Pre it might have been like uh, early 88. Yeah, early 88. And we're down San Antonio. We're at the hotel getting ready to go to the gig. And the clock radio is on in the hotel, little clock radio. And it's on 99.5 Kiss. And Joe Anthony's show just started. And he goes on, this is a new band called Dirty Looks. And this song is called Oh Ruby China. The riff in a mic, I just dropped everything. I was like, I turned around. Are you guys hearing this? Oh my <laughs> God, are you fucking hearing this? Blew our minds. So we were on a mission to find that record. Like the next day, we were looking for that record. 
Yeah. So then, you know, we get we get the deal. We're starting a tour. You know, I, I'm opening Borelli Guns. I open the door, and there they are. I get to see them live. I knew all the words. Blah, 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 blah. By '94, I'd stolen their guitar player. Yeah. So yeah. Yeah. That that uh, that album. I'm glad you brought up Max Norman. He did indeed produce this record, and as you mentioned, produced uh, the first two Ozzy Osbourne records. Yes. Uh, and of course the first dangerous toys record and the uh cool from the wire the dirty looks record came out in 88 so it was right in that time space where you had appetite for destruction the first faster pussycat record the first la guns record not far behind that was the first dangerous toys record and if you like any or all of those bands and you don't have cool from the wire you need it because it fits right in with that whole type of that sort of sound and and vibe and i consider it every bit as important as the records i just mentioned uh but you don't often hear it brought up in conversation but it's if a, you can't if you can't find the the cd because it's out of print if you can't find the cd or the or the uh vinyl of course you'll good luck finding the vinyl um they're out there, but yeah, that, that's why I was so thrilled to have that copy for my birthday. Yeah, yeah, it's on. Uh, it's it's on the, all the other platforms. You can you can dial it up on your phone and listen right now. So yeah, yeah, yeah um, your turn. So I I uh, well, real quick before I talk about my Gus Dungeon story, which I missed, uh, my Elton John thing. Uh, I don't, you, you do realize that uh, I, I'm kind of in Dirty Looks now. Yeah, you guys were okay. supposed to, uh, they were supposed to, the remaining members of Dirty Looks asked you to fill in for Henrik, who is no longer with us. I didn't make that point earlier. Henrik uh, sadly passed away some six or eight years ago, something yeah, like that. Yeah, that's, that's good enough guess. Yeah, and uh, the remaining members of Dirty Looks asked you to do a couple shows, and you were going to do lead vocals, and it was a couple of festival gigs, and that all went to crap with COVID. That's right. Um, the, uh, the idea is still on we plan on doing some some celebratory i call them tribute shows to henrik and that was my plan to even like make sure that the audience and that whatever press i did that everyone knew that my hat is off and i bow to the legacy of henrik because you know he created something with dirty looks that that yeah. he woke it up you know he yeah. woke up rock and roll um, I heard that before I heard Rhino Bucket. You know, I heard that before uh, a lot of things that were just that, you know, he took like just the idea of like sleazy hard rock to a different kind of a place. Yeah. Like I said earlier, it sounds to me like old except mixed with some Aerosmith and some ACDC. And it was once again, it was like pub rock. Like we were mentioning and it's it's like that. Yeah. A little more heavy, a little more on the heavy metal side, but yeah, yeah. 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 But dude, um, what a voice! Yeah, God bless. Okay, him. so enough about that. Uh, Gus Dungeon, uh, and then I'll get to my second record. Gus Dungeon produced Elton John, um, Captain Fantastic, and the Brown Dirt Cowboy. Uh, one of my favorite records of all time, which is what we're talking about here on Talk Louder today. Um. 
fast forward to 90 something. I don't even remember when it was, Dave, but I was at the old, the good old back room. And I don't even know what the hell I was doing there, but Fastball was playing a show at the back room. And that wasn't really their hang, but Fastball was doing a gig. They had a hot record. I think that they were doing a follow-up. They were um, checking out producers, and one of the producers they were talking to was Gus Dungeon. And I had heard that, I mean, I was there, and I think Miles Zuniga, guitar player, Fastball, mentioned to me there at Soundcheck that Gus Dungeon was there walking around. And I'm like, what? <laughs> uh, I know who that is. You know, what? Yeah. You know, and, and he's like, yeah. And then I turn around and Gus Dungeon is walking up. Hey, my, how you doing? You know, it's like English, flamboyant, blonde hair, you know, dressed all in white. Like Leon Redbone kind of a vibe, you know, <laughs> walking up. And I was like, what the hell? Oh, my God. And uh, it was after uh, the Toys had made a record with Roy Thomas Baker. Yeah. Which, well, I'll get, I'll get to Roy Thomas Baker. But Roy, Roy did the Hellacious Acres Dangerous Toys record. Right. And I mentioned that to, to Gus. And he's like, oh, I know Roy. I was like, of course you know. Of course. Like, I... I think all those old English producer guys who do Elton John and Queen and David Bowie, of course they know each other. Right. How the hell do I know if for sure, for real, they know each other? But in my fantastic brain, yes, they know each other. Right. Um, I got Gus to sign a bar napkin right off the bar at the now legendary, <laughs> defunct, gone forever back room. Uh, and it's shoved inside one of my many copies of Captain Fantastic, uh, vinyl copies, and I'll have to find it somewhere, uh, and scan it and send it to Jared, I guess. <laughs> so, <laughs> that's awesome. Uh, pretty cool. Um, yeah. I do have Elton's autograph and that's a whole other story, um, as well. Let me move on to my second record. Okay. So. Album number two for J-Mac. Okay, here we go. So this came out in 75. Oh, same exact year as Captain Fantastic. How about that? Yeah, well, that's how it works. Um, now, this record, Queen, A Night at the Opera, uh, mm -hmm. is mind-blower. Some Queen fans call it the White Album because Day at the Races was a bl the Black Album, right? So... Uh, just, just going to run by the tracks so we know what, what album we're talking about. So, you know, the young people today, they don't, they like songs. They don't like albums. They don't know who Gus Dungeon is. They don't know who Max Norman is. They could give a shit, right? They okay. Might know who Brian May is. May, if they're, yeah, maybe on a good day, you know, if they're, if, yeah, they don't play <laughs> Trivial Pursuit either, I don't think. Anyway, so, uh, Death on Two Legs mm -hmm. changed my whole. Oh my God! Death on Two Legs. I'm a, I'm ten years old listening to Death on Two Legs. Just the title is perfect. I'm, yeah, I'm walking around singing. I'm ten years old. <laughs> Death on Two Legs. 
Yeah, tearing me apart. Right, okay. Uh, lazing on a Sunday afternoon, um, which I believe might be some. No, I think Freddie sings it. Um, it's like ragtime. Yeah. It's like a it's like, you know, it's like that. It's like this, like, you know, Charlie Chaplin is like, you know, doing <laughs> you know, slapstick shit. That it's that kind of a song. And I'm in love with my car. Do you know that song? Yeah, I know. Yeah, that. that's um Roger Taylor, the drummer singing that. So heavy. Yeah. Thick. Yeah. It's thick. Um, uh, and then Roger, Roger, uh, Deacon, I'm sorry, John Deacon, the bass player wrote, you're my best friend. Great song. Oh my God. Yeah. Huge hit. Huge. Not, not as big as some of their other hits, of course, but big hit. Great song. Uh, yeah. Great. Yeah. You're my best friend. The uh, wrote that song is so timeless and it, it, the what's timeless the sentiment of that song, you yes. know, talking yeah, yeah, yeah. about the value of friendship and, and loyalty and that sort of thing. And that's all fine and good, but to be able to express that convincingly adds a whole nother layer to it. And nobody could express convincingly quite as good as Freddie Mercury, right? No, he's, um, He's a very emotional singer, and you you can attach yourself to to what he has to offer. That's why he takes the the the, the words off the page are one thing because it's such a great song, but to deliver it the way that only Freddie could, that's why it's stuck in your head forever, and that's why it was a big hit. Cause yeah, it was delivered with so much power and emotion. Well, and when you find out that the bass player, you know. I mean, I know I know who John Deacon is. You know who John Deacon is, but you know some people like the bass player. You know, some people don't notice the bass player. Anyway, he wrote one of the biggest songs by Queen there is. Yeah. Um, just want to put this out there. Uh, you're my best friend. Be a fantastic wedding song, like you know your connection song with your partner. You're yeah. my best friend. You ooh, you make me live. Yeah. Whatever this world can give to me, it's you. I think I've heard that at a few weddings, actually. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure you have. It's it's perfect. You're right. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then uh, there's a Brian May song called 39, and it's talking about the year 1939, and I don't know what the lyrics are. It's not one that I skipped over ever, but it's very haunting. It's acoustic number. I mean, it has drums, but it's got... A lot of backing vocals. It's very uh, ghosty sounding to me. Yeah. Uh, Sweet Lady is, of course, Freddie. Uh, and it's just so sassy and sexy. Yeah. And it, But it's hard. You know what I mean? It's super, like, uh, tough sounding. Yeah. It's digging in his sweet, sweet lady. You know, he's not all... He's not being sweet about it whatsoever. Yeah. He's talking about he's he's getting all up in there. He's scraping the insides. <laughs> um, and then Seaside Rendezvous is another, you know, <laughs> you know, it's another another sort of like, Charlie uh, 
yeah, to, yeah, to give you like silent <laughs> movie, you know, you know, saloon piano, and they did that a lot, but they mixed it up so well. Um, you know, most records only had about eight or nine songs on it. This one has twelve. Yeah, for 1975, a that's a lot. It's a lot for that. Time. Yeah. Uh, uh, the Prophet song is next, and uh, I want to say that is tuned down uh to drop d in 1975 so around that time and just prior would have been tony iomi and brian may who are close friends yeah and iomi played at the concert for freddie alongside brian may you know next time you watch that queen special episode tribute to freddie where they have all you know james hatfield does stone cold crazy and george michael comes out and axel rose and all these badasses come out with queen and do yeah. this tribute right yeah it's it's incredible it's an incredible moment in rock and roll history look at all of the you got all these like Marshall stacks. I mean, Iomi plays Laney, and I don't think that they're Laney stacks. I think they rented him some Marshalls. If you look at the stage, well, everybody who plays guitar knows that Brian May does not play Marshall. He does not play Laney. Because I can't remember if it's Marshall or Laney that's up there. I know that Iomi does play Laney amps. I'm going to go with Marshall. I, I think if I recall right, there's this, anyway, there's this wall of, of, of Marshall amps that are not Brian May. Brian May plays Vox amps. Okay. okay. You're like, what? Whose amps are those? What? <laughs> but, you know, also Slash is going to come out. And, you know, other people are going to come out and play. So, of course, there's Marshalls up there. But these are over on, you know, it's like, these are, these never move the whole concert. Right. Who's the, and then, like, you see camera moving around. Oh my, oh my, hold, rewind. Yeah. Oh my God, that's Tony Iommi. Yeah. And I think one moment through that concert, Brian May gets on the mic. He's so sweet and he's so nice sounding. Yeah, I'd like to introduce my friend, Tony Iommi. Yay. And it's like, oh my God. And then the, the, the extra footage when you buy the DVD of that shows rehearsal and like James Hetfield is like shitting himself. He's like, oh my God, I'm in rehearsal with Tony Iommi and Brian May, you know. And yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> incredible, incredible. Anyway, yeah. sorry to go off. Yeah, Prophet Song Drop D, heavy as shit, that song. Our friend Stephen Blackmore, who lives in the in the UK, was actually at that gig. And he 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 likes to remind me as often as possible, I think, just to make me jealous. But he was actually that was at Wembley Stadium, wasn't it? Uh, the Freddie I think Mercury. so. I and think so. he was there. So uh, yeah, he uh, he mentions it quite often because I'm sure it was just an amazing sight and and sound to behold if you were one of the lucky people. At yeah, the that's a celebratory <clears throat> moment, like I like I said and like I've yeah. described. Um, and I'm wondering, uh, we could ask Stephen Blackmore if uh, the people on the stage look like ants. <laughs> you know, it depended on where he was staying. I'd be impressed if he was in the first 50 rows, but uh, yeah. 
chat. I don't know. I'm sure he'll leave a comment and let us know when. He yeah, please goes. let yeah. us know where where he was standing in that mess and how many how many yards of ale he had had. Uh, <laughs> so, love of my life, which is my, huge, another wedding song. Yep. Love of my life, you've hurt me, you've taken my all, and now you leave me. Love of my life, can't you see? Bring it back, bring it back, don't take it away from me, because you don't know what it means to me. You do that a lot better than I would have. <laughs> well, I couldn't stop once I started, so I apologize. I didn't mean to do a solo, but that's all I need to say about that. Yes, yeah. great. Uh, Good Company is another Brian May, kind of like, who knows, sort of a, a big band kind of a thing. Yeah. And then um, there's this thing called Bohemian, Rap Bohemian Rhapsody. Did I say that right? I think. Do you? Do you yeah. Do you, have you heard that one? Um, I'm you know what I'm talking to... about? Um, Here, I'm let me try to make sure, make sure I'm saying that right. Bohemian <laughs> Rhapsody. Yeah, I think I'm Oh, yeah, yeah. It was, uh, it was in Wayne's World, wasn't it? <laughs> I kid, I kid. Yes, of course I know that song. Who does? Okay, so I don't need to talk about that song. No, no. We could do a whole fucking three-hour show of Talk Louder episode on just that song. Yeah. That song is heavy metal. It's opera. Yep. Hard rock. It's dramatic. Yeah. It will yeah. make you... Yeah, it will blow your mind, to say the least. Uh, and then they do the... Uh, they do God Save the Queen at the end, and I'm not talking Sex Pistols. <laughs> it's the ode to uh london and the queen is yeah. what it's, it's the the traditional uh they do a version of it they used to close their shows with it on tape actually queen did it's the song where they they come out and bow and all that um bohemian rhapsody is 559 let's call it six minutes being the longest song on the record the shortest song not counting god save the queen because it's more of an outro the shortest song on the record would be your no seaside rendezvous at 214 but close to that i wanted to mention you're my best friend at two minutes 50 seconds this record changed my life yeah well that's a good one you can't go wrong with queen so uh nice choice my number two is uh corrosion of conformity also known as COC Blind, the record. Wow, good one. Blind. It came out in 1991, and um, it was the first album to feature Pepper Keenan as a member of the band on rhythm guitar. The first and only COC album to feature vocalist Carl, I think his last name is pronounced Agel. Um, I know how to spell it. I don't know how to say it. A-G-E-L-L. Carl with a K. Um, and it's uh, Mike Dean, the longtime bass player of COC, is not on this album. He was replaced on this album by Phil Swisher. Um, 
But this is an album where COC kind of went from being a crossover thrash slash hardcore band along the lines of like a DRI or a Suicidal Tendencies and moved much more into heavy metal. And um, there's, uh, I really like the record. I remember when it came out and I heard it. Uh, the song that got my attention, of course, was Boat with a Bullet which I think is just one of the gnarliest riffs ever, you know? Um, and it's got... Like, uh, Dance of the Dead. Dance of the Dead. Uh, um, Mine are the Eyes of God. Uh, what's the other one? Um, uh, Mine are the Eyes of God. Vote with a Bullet. Uh, uh, Damned for All Time. Um Anyway, it was a really good album, and it was kind of a departure for them at that point. And that's kind of the template that they continue to follow even to this day. They kind of they kind of left their hardcore crossover punk thrash roots and kind of became more of a, a more of a metal band. And uh, of course, they went through a lot of lineup changes and whatever. But uh, that particular album, I also like the way the drums are recorded because, you know, people talk about um uh, the way eric carr's drums sound on the creatures of the night record well on this album uh reed mullen is the is the drummer uh who sadly passed away recently but reed uh there's something about the way the ride symbol was captured on that album like it's like when he's playing the top of the ride where he's hitting the bell on the on the ride symbol it just dings so loudly and clearly that it really adds an element to the song that you don't often hear that high in the mix. You know, it's not often that the ride symbol stands out as prominently as it does on blind. Um, so for that reason and the songs and vote with a bullet um, and the fact that COC um, kind of turned the corner and became more of a, a little bit more of a metal band. I think that's a great record. And it kind of gets overlooked, but uh, definitely a good one. I was listening to it actually just the other day, and it reminds me of uh, the thrash parts are, are are real. They're sort of choppy in sort of an anthrax kind of way. So it kind of reminds me, that album reminds me of like COC turning into a blend of Black Sabbath with maybe a little bit of anthrax you know there's thrash in there but it's a it's a very choppy kind of thrash and um anyway i love it coc blind 1991 some uh some turning point if you will with the, your descriptions yes definitely. turning point the um i had forgotten for whatever reason that uh mike dean was not on that record uh i know they did that record as a five-piece band I know that around that time they were auditioning for singers. Um, this is sounds like I'm tooting my own horn again. Sorry, everybody. But uh, Danny Loner, if anybody knows who that Danny Loner is, called me and to ask me if I wanted to audition for COC, and I turned it down. I was like, I don't know. I don't think I would fit. I had no idea that they were going into. Right, because all, all I know is eye for an eye and technocracy at that yeah. time, animosity. which is like animosity, right? And and it's very uh, sort of uh, I like your description, but it was almost like this. It was 
progressive. It was a little progressive and stop start riff and they were a three piece band and Mike Dean was the singer and, and, you know, playing bass and singing. And it was very hardcore, but it was also this, like, it reminded me a little bit of Voivod and it had that sort of flavor to it. Yeah. Um, it was like a pissed off if Voivod wasn't pissed off enough. COC to me was like a more even more pissed off Voivod from yeah. from Raleigh, North Carolina. Yeah. So so um yeah. So and and I know that my my buddy George Mack actually auditioned for COC for that record. And uh, I, I I never I, I I never knew uh or I don't I don't know it to be a household name this Carl Agile that you mentioned but he was good and yeah. the record was great and I remember vote with a bullet coming on the radio and on like Z Rock or something Z Rock I think helped break that record the people who remember Z Rock that's like a throwback um, but. It's a great record. I think I had a cassette copy of it. Um, I had a promo poster for it. Uh, and I didn't know Pepper Keenan to be a household name yet either. Yeah. Uh, um, but you, you touch into some interesting, you mentioned Sabbath, you mentioned heavy metal, you mentioned um, the thrash things about, this this record blind i feel like the record after that that brought mike dean back in but had pepper as the lead vocalist right right because pepper sang some songs on blind if i'm not like two songs i think pepper sings on that record on blind i think he sings a couple of songs may i'm not sure maybe okay all right i know uh, carl was the you know Please comment. Please feel free to comment and see if I'm right. Uh, but I think Pepper sings a little bit. Two songs tops on Blind. So the record after that, yeah, Deliverance. Deliverance. If yeah. my math is right. That's right. Uh, Four-piece band, not a five-piece band. Mike Dean's back in the band. That, I mean, it sounds like it's got Thin Lizzy riffs on it. Yeah, you're right. Again, it's it, got it, it's got Sabbathy stuff on it. They almost it's shifted a, gears again. It's a rock and roll record. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and Pepper's got this kind of like groovy thing going on too. Yeah, woo! You know, he's got this groovy thing going on, yeah. and it makes it rock. Yeah. And I had never even, I mean, I remember the blind record, but when I heard Deliverance, I was like, man, this is like a mix of like, oh, I don't know, like stoner metal, like doom kind of stuff, like trouble mixed with like some rock and roll. It's funny that you mentioned trouble because on the inner sleeve of the blind record, uh, Reed is wearing a trouble t-shirt. Perfect. Yeah. That, it doesn't shock me at all. I, uh. I wrote to Reed a few times back in the 80s, and uh, I have a, an old flyer with a letter written from Reed, like a flyer with a letter written on it from Reed in my collection somewhere. Uh, yeah, I cherish that. Um, yeah, yeah. 
Uh, good, good call on the blind. That's yeah. a, that's a deep, that, that would be considered like a deep cut. Yeah. Cut, right. Yeah. So, so, one. so shall I do my third? Yeah. Let's hear your third. Okay. So, uh, around 70, uh, 78, no, 77, 78, uh, me and my brother would take these. My parents were divorced at that point. By that time, my parents had split. Uh, and me and my brother Randy and my dad would take these trips to Colorado. And we'd pull a trail, you know, we'd go camping, you know, and we, I remember one time we, we drove out to, uh, um, California to Anaheim and he set me and Randy loose at, at Disneyland by ourselves, just running all over Disneyland. And that was just incredible. So we were old enough to, to, to do that. Yeah. What do you want to ride next? Now nah, we already rode that. Well, I want to ride it again. That, you know, brothers run, yeah. <laughs> running around Disneyland. Um, but so when we take these trips, and maybe maybe the 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 traveling as the three of us, you know, the three amigos, dad, father, and sons, kind of thing, uh, made this record mean more to me. Probably did because that's kind of how music works too. Sure. Yeah. Uh, and I was the biggest Kiss freak in the world. I so yeah. I thought. Right. I mean. My walls were covered. I had a different Kiss t-shirt for every day of the week. I was, I had a problem. <laughs> I, I yeah. had a serious, I had a serious problem. I was right um, there with you. Yeah, yeah. And it was, uh, I loved my problem. <laughs> yeah. I loved the problem that I had. If we lived I in mean, the same city at that time, we would have been in the same rehab together. That, that's right. Kiss <laughs> rehab. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, there there should be such a thing. Uh, hi, my name's Jason, and I worship Kiss. Hi, Jason. You know, we, Jason. yeah. Well, <laughs> we need to start a Kiss rehab, don't we? Everybody sitting in the circle has their face yeah. painted. Yeah. <laughs> oh, we got to do this. Uh, trademark. We own the trademark on that. We got to trademark that Kiss rehab. Okay. So, Gene, you can't have that. <laughs> we'll spell kiss different, right? right? We'll put six S's on it or something. Okay, so it's Willie Nelson, Redheaded Stranger, Dave. Oh, all right. There you know, we go. Um, that's out of the blue. Good. Well, I don't, I don't know. This is it's. A, I, I confess, what I'm holding in my hand is a reissue. Um, I don't think that it had literally 19 freaking songs on it when, when it came out on record or eight track. It was, by the way, it was eight track. So we're, here's the three of us cruising down I-10 in a pickup truck with a camper on it, pulling it, pulling a pop-up trailer, yeah. uh, uh, traveling vacation style. Um, listening to eight tracks and my dad only had like three, eight tracks. <laughs> and so we just, we just, you know, looped them. Yeah. 
we yeah. just, we, you know, we'd, we'd listen to them. We'd start off with Willie and we'd go to Tammy Wynette and George Jones and we'd go to, you know, whatever it was. Yeah. Um, so redheaded stranger, uh, let me just read the songs off here. Time of the preacher, time of the preacher. <laughs> In the year of old one. Again, oh, God, I'm going to start crying. I'm going to start crying. <laughs> yeah. Pretend is over. And the killing's begun. Cry like a baby. Scream like a panther in the middle of the night. Oh, my God. Freak me out. It was the, it was like listening to like uh, um, a, a minister or an old Pentecostal preacher talk to you about it, talk to you in parables, yeah. like Jesus telling you stories. <laughs> but it was in the in the it was in the guise of country music and Willie Nelson, and not country as we know today that you know like t television country. Right. That ain't country. Right. That's pop music with a cowboy hat. Yeah. Okay. So uh, I couldn't believe it was not true. That's the song title. Uh, Time of the Preacher theme. Uh, medley Blue Rock, Montana uh, slash uh, Redheaded Stranger. And then, of course, Blue Eyes Crying in the Rain. Yeah. Uh, which is like a waltz kind of thing. Redheaded Stranger comes back. By the way, this is this is kind of like a concept record. Yeah. You don't realize this till you start reading. It's like watching a movie, this thing. There's he did a, make a movie. He did make a movie of this. Yeah. I've been out to the uh, land where that movie was filmed. Oh, sweet. Where I mean, is that? It's in a little town called Luck, Texas. Wow. Out by Spicewood, and I was invited out every Easter. Willie Nelson used to invite 500 of his closest friends out to his land, which still has the stage set for Redheaded Stranger. So it's like an old Western town with a saloon and a church and a dry goods store and a jail or whatever. And uh, I happened to work with a woman who was best friends with Willie's daughter and because of that connection I was invited out one time and got to meet Willie Nelson and uh, he actually did a gospel service in the little church on that property and it was I actually took my buddy Mark DeHoyas uh, from San Antonio he was the he was the lead singer in a band called Scythe and he came up with me and joined me. And uh, so we got to meet Willie Nelson. And Willie was just great. Like he, he asked me all about my family, where I was from. He wanted to know all about me. And I just thought that was super cool of him, you know, just gracious as could be, took all the time in the world just to talk and get to learn, just trying, you know, wanted to get to know me. And I was like, why do you want to know anything about me? But okay, this is cool. And uh, anyway, so I don't mean to sidetrack your story, but uh, I got to go out there and, and spend some time and met Willie Nelson and watched him perform in the church on the property where Redheaded Stranger was filmed. And I think it's still standing there today. 
Wow. Was it full band? Uh, no, it was pretty stripped down. It was Willie and his acoustic trigger <laughs> and, uh, you know, a couple other side players. Uh, I mean, it was, it was, it was fairly sparse because this church, I mean, the, the place was packed. I actually had to watch him perform. I went around behind the building and stuck my head in the back door and we kind of watched him from behind because the church itself was just jam packed full of people. I mean, it's tiny to begin with. And Willie Nelson is giving a private Easter service. Dude, forget it. You yeah, know? that's pretty, that's pretty incredible. Wow. How, how, uh, how blessed you are. How, how lucky kind of a thing. It was fun. It was fun. I told him you, my dad was a big fan and he wanted to know all about my dad. And I yeah. mean, he, he was just a sweetheart of a guy. Yeah. Gracious. Yeah. Uh, amazing. Anyways, well, go ahead. Living angel. Yeah. Uh, um, uh just as i am song called denver uh or the waves down yonder can i sleep in your arms remember me hands on the wheel yeah no wonder you fell in love with that record yeah i'm sorry i'm choking up a little bit a lot of memories yeah that's what good music does yeah, I'm sorry. Nah, man, that's good stuff. I mean, that's that's the power of music, right? Yeah. Anyway, uh, this this record uh, really changed a lot of things for me. Yeah, I can see it in your face, man. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's yeah. Heavy. I'm sorry. No. Yeah. Uh, this, sorry about. Um, yeah, there's there's a lot of uh, between uh, the Elton record and this, there are moments that I can't I can't even listen to the record sometimes because this happens. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, you know, it's uh for music to be that powerful. That's the beauty of it. Yeah, it's pretty. That's it's pretty amazing. That is the beauty of it. That's why you and I are such music geeks and so many people listening, because when when music can touch your soul, and it often does, it's magic. And and that's really hard to capture. You you can't just put that in a bottle and market it. I mean, that's that's heartfelt, it's genuine, and it touches something inside you that's just uh it's it's more than a commodity, way much more than a commodity. I have albums like that and songs like that. I think we all do. You're so connected to them because of the memories you associate with them or just the lyrics say exactly what you've been feeling for 35 years, but you've never been able to express it quite the way this person just did. And that's the beauty and the power of music. Well, there's... That's there, why it's a universal language. That's right. It's it's storyline too. Yeah. There's there's uh, someone telling you a story. You know, you know, if I'm a young person, if I'm like a all of twelve or maybe thirteen years old, and I'm hearing this story about this guy who's a lonesome cowboy who uh, is traveling, and uh, he caught his wife cheating. And he went to go shoot the guy that she's cheating on him with. And uh, 
he gets killed, but then somebody, somebody else shoots, and then his wife gets killed too. And he's just talking about all this emotion and stuff. It's like, dude, it's like watching a movie. Yeah. And uh, when you're a young person, you uh, are hearing this and you're you're getting into it. Well, I guarantee when I'm in the truck with my dad and my brother, all of 12 years old or 13 or whatever I was, I'm not tearing up like I am now. It's the memories of me and my dad and my brother in the truck traveling. Yeah, yeah. It's the connection. It's not the lyrics. It's the connection you have to the song. Yeah, yeah. that's right. To exactly. to the record, to the whole to the whole record, to oh, the wow. moment it takes me there. And that's why this record is special. I, I have to confess. Yeah. I love the record. I love the songs. Um, you know, I, I have to say it's the only Willie album that I have. Yeah. And if I went and bought a Willie record today, it would probably be some kind of, I'm just confessing, it would probably be like a greatest hits or something. Yeah. But but the idea that <clears throat> that, that record has such great material on it, and every time I listen to it, it reminds me of traveling with my father and my brother out west. That's like 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 cowboys on the trail. Yeah. And we're stopping along the way, camping, dude. It's it's a whole other movie, right? That's magic, so, man. That is yeah. magic. Yeah. Sorry about that. I, no, I, no, not at all. That's kind no, of not, crazy. Not at all. Not at I should, all. No, I should have known that was going to happen. Well, so. that's the power of music. That's the beauty of it. The magic of it. And uh, I totally understand it. I have I have albums and songs that do the same thing for me and one day we'll probably talk about those as well um i don't know how i'm going to top that bro <laughs> but, no i i i i'm i'm telling you it, it was a no these three records that i chose were no brainers yeah you know i didn't even go per, i didn't go no yeah maybe no no just digging through records it yeah. was like give me this give me this and give me this i'm fucking done yeah it was that easy for me yeah well, I don't know if I could top your Willie Nelson, but I'm going to I'm going to throw another album in. Uh, it's not a contest. No. It's not a contest. Yeah, I know. Uh, I'm going with a band called the River City Rebels, and I don't know how familiar you are with them or how familiar our listeners might be with them, but um, they are a band out of Vermont, of all places. Uh, they formed around 1999, 2000, something like that. And they put it on, put out an album in 2006 called hate to be loved. And, um, it's kind of interesting the way that album came onto my radar. I was, uh, I was in a record store here in Austin, Texas one day, and I was flipping through the CDs at the time. I'm flipping through some CDs and I see this album by this band called River City Rebels. And this was the album before the one that I'm speaking of. And so I didn't know anything about the band, but the album cover looked cool. I turned it over and they did a cover of the Ramon song 53rd and 3rd. So I was like, okay, good enough for me. I'll roll the dice. They're covering the Ramones. So I took it home and I listened to it. At the time, I'm writing for Metal Edge magazine. And Paul Gargano 
the managing editor of uh, Metal Edge magazine at the time, messages me within days of me discovering this album and says, hey, have you ever heard of this band called River City Rebels? And I was like, funny that you bring them up because I just happened to stumble on a CD of theirs and I've been listening to it this week. And he says, is it called Hate to Be Loved? And I said, no, it's called uh, Live to Play, Play to Live, some, something like that. Living to play, play to Live, Living to Play, something to that effect. And um, I, he goes, well, they have a new album called Hate to Be Loved. And uh, you're kind of my punk rock guy as far as the writers who write for the magazine. I want to send it to you, see what you think. And if you're interested, we should do like an interview with these guys and do a feature in the magazine. I said, all right, send it to me. And so he sends it to me. In the meantime, he tells me that he met them. I think Paul was based in maybe New York, somewhere on the East Coast at the time. And so he said the band came to town and played a gig and he went and met them. And he said, they're super nice guys. And um, if you like what you hear, Let's do a let's do a feature on him. I said, okay. So he sends me the record. And I was like, oh man, this is great. Cause it was, it was very, it was very musical for a band that to me, they're kind of like a garage glam punk band, but that's oversimplifying it because there's a lot of musicality going on. There's they have brass, they have keys, um, they have uh and of course, they've got all the high energy and a slightly glam, like a trashy glam image. They kind of remind me of a combination of Hanoi Rocks meets The Clash uh, without The Clash's politics. But you know how The Clash is very musical? There's four guys in the band, but there's a lot of, of musicianship going on among those four dudes. And so I'm listening to the record. I'm loving it. They're coming to San Antonio. I go to the gig and Paul from Metal Edge says, when you go to meet them, ask them to take you out to their RV because they're traveling in an RV. And apparently the RV was plastered in all these, how shall I say, uh, centerfolds from men's magazines, I guess would be the polite way to put it. And I said, okay. So we go to the gig, me and my wife, uh, we meet them, your buddy, not yes. just for men. Not just for men. <laughs> Not just for men. You said men's magazines. Uh, okay. I, all right. Women, yeah. women also like those magazines. Okay. Well, the, the, let me let me regroup and be all inclusive here. So, hmm. um, but you get what I'm trying to say. Oh yeah. So I go to the gig in San Antonio. I meet the guys, and who's sitting at the bar with the guys? except your buddy and my pal, Donnie Van Stavern. Because it's downtown San Antonio and Donnie's hanging around the local rock club, right? Mm -hmm. So I, I end up meeting the guys. We kind of hit it off. They dedicate this song. I told them my favorite song off the album was called uh, No Easy Way Out. And um, it's this really haunting kind of dark song. And they dedicated it to me from the stage. And I loved the album even before all this connection, this sense of connection. And we ended up doing an interview and it was a full page spread in, or a, a multiple page spread in Metal Edge magazine. But the album, the album is called Hate to be Loved. And like I said, it's kind of got 
a trashy glam garage vibe to it, but it's also got like a little bit of storyteller vibe, like a Bruce Springsteen or some Americana stuff. And again, it's got brass and keys. So there's a lot of musicianship going on. And uh, I, I just, it, it was uh, produced by Sylvain Sylvain from the New York Dolls. Um, I was going to say, with all of the descript, I like the description. It's almost like I can hear the music the way you're describing it. But it, I was going to say, it sounds very East Coast. Yeah. And it, and the, and you know, their, their influences are very, you know, they're also very stonesy and clashy and, They don't limit themselves. I I got to know the guys personally after the album came out, and they're big fans of Wilco and Bruce Springsteen and uh, Jesse Jesse Mallon does a a guest vocal on this album, Hate to Be Loved. Um, So if you're into any of the bands I just mentioned, you know, The Clash, Hanoi Rocks, The Rolling Stones, uh, The Dictators, uh, the New York Dolls, uh, River City Rebels, Hate to Be Loved. It's a great record. And oddly enough, they were signed to Victory Records, which was this label that put out like East Coast hardcore, like shaved heads and hoodies, you know? And they were not, it's kind of like the Goo Goo Dolls were signed to Metal Blade. It didn't make any sense, you know? Yeah. But um, River City Rebels, not to be confused with a band called Rubber City Rebels, who I believe are from cleveland ohio but the river city rebels from vermont the album's called hate to be loved and it's one of my go-to records and it never lets me down it's it's great from top to bottom um i need to hear that it sounds like uh it sounds like they uh is who who writes in the band is it the singer guitar player guy who does most of the writing yeah i think it's uh the core of the, at the time, I think was the singer's name is Dan. He he goes by Bopper, or, or we call him Bop for short. So Bop, the guitar player, is Patty Patty Botox. <laughs> he goes by Patty Bo, uh, and they had a guy named Brandon uh, who was the keyboard player, and those three guys were sort of the core of the band, uh, and then they had a cast of characters that rotated in and out. Uh, our buddy Pat Bergeron and uh, your bass player uh, Billy Chainsaw and Igniter, uh, they love this band, and uh, yeah, and I do too. When I, they were brought to my attention, um, I heard the record and I was like, "Oh my god, this is this is fantastic! I got to get to know these guys. I got to learn more about them." And then because of the Metal Edge article, we just kind of you know became buddies and. Uh, they used to come to town for South by Southwest and I wouldn't miss them. And, and Chainsaw was there and Pat was there and we always had a good time with those guys, but awesome. River city rebels hate to be loved. Go check that one out. Awesome. I feel like, um, <clears throat> I feel like people are going to learn a lot about, uh, us personally, because these are kind of like some sort of like hidden favorites of our, from our personal collections as well as learn um, that, you know, the songwriting matters and we don't have to have a buzz to be emotionally connected to these 
to these songs and to this to to music and it's not one style of music i mean let's 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 uh let's go through our three records let's do let's go yours first you started with dirty looks yeah then you went where what was your set to blind by coc yeah then you went to river city rebels did i say that right correct yes so describe you know dirty looks yeah so i basically went from a hard rock band to a metal band to a garage punk band i guess to to that that has that has a horn section yeah that has a horn section (laughs) yeah so how cool is that yeah 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 yeah. it works yeah and i went from queen i don't need to describe queen i went queen well oh no i went i went elton john i went from elton john i don't need to to queen i don't somehow those are related to me queen elton john right so from elton to queen to willie nelson yeah so in my heart and soul and mind and brain and even though i'm a metalhead that makes sense to me that those three things made sense to me uh growing up meanwhile while i'm hearing all of those things at least by the time i got into willie nelson which would have been a few years later uh then i had these you know those that i went from 75 to 77 78 hearing willie nelson with my you know on my vacations um with my father where while wearing a kiss destroyer shirt with you know a ball hat a baseball hat that had another kiss logo on it with a kiss belt buckle all at the same time wearing tough skins jeans (laughs) yeah 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 but you can yeah 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 Yeah, that was one of the reasons for wanting to do this show i mean anyone that knows us anyone that listens to the to the podcast will know that we just can't help but steer toward Judas Priest, Iron Maiden, Ronnie James Dio, Motorhead, ACDC. But I wanted a, a, an episode like today's to sort of offer a little more insight into our collections and our catalogs of music and and possibly expose our listeners to some new bands that they might dig based on our descriptions and based on our memories of those bands. Because, um, you know... I think getting out of the box once in a while is great. And I love the fact that you brought up Willie Nelson because uh, a lot of people listening to this podcast probably wouldn't, you know, possibly wouldn't picture you as a Willie Nelson guy. Not only are you a Willie Nelson guy, the guy, that album just, you know, tugged at your heartstrings. And again, that's the beauty of music. And I want people to know other dimensions of us besides just the horns in the air and the bullet belts and the ACDC and, the, you know, because all that is great too, of course. Well, uh, it's not all about denim leather and good beer. You know, it's about, it's about this. That's what I was trying to say. It's, you don't, uh, you know, I, I don't condone drug use. I don't mind it finding its way into my lyrics, uh, because I think that it helps paint pictures. Um, you know, I think that there's a lot of people that are hung up on, you know addictions and things and you know the partying side of of uh the entertainment business um to where if uh you know that 
that's just always going to be part of it. There's a lot of people that struggle. And uh, if it wasn't a hang up, I wouldn't mention it in my lyrics. Um, so, so, you know, and it mentioned that's, that's mentioned in all, you know, that's in all three of my, my records that I mentioned today, that's also in there. But my point, again, I'm going to say it, I feel like it's the third time I've said it, you, you know, you don't have to party to be into the song you're listening to. Yeah. Yeah, sure. Stay, Some I mean, people I feel like might not want to they're suppressing, you know, so they, they might take the edge off, yeah. you know, by whatever choice vice they have. Right. Uh, I don't need, I don't need that. Yeah. I just need a good song. Yeah. And it's kind of what this episode is about. Yeah, exactly. And, and we'll do another one and another one and another one, because I think it's, it's a lot of fun for, uh, for, for me personally to talk about some other things in my collection that don't necessarily, uh, rise to the top of the conversation when when we get uh, caught up in our excitement of Iron Maiden and Judas Priest and that sort of thing. But, you know, to me, there's always going to be room for Willie Nelson and Elton John. And uh, I've got some things in my catalog that aren't, quote unquote, typical of what people might consider me to, to listen to. But uh, yeah, I, that's I, what I, I can't wait till you till you show yourself. Yeah. That and sounds sounds weird, but you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and we will on a future episode because I like this idea, and I think we'll do this again. Um, but thanks for sharing your 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 selections today, and uh, I think we should move on to our shot of rock and roll. This episode shot of rock and roll is my story behind this photo of me with iron maiden singer bruce dickinson um for those of you listening and not able to see what i'm talking about let me give you just a bit of a visual it's 1990 um i am outside of a club in san antonio called sneakers and iron Ma or i'm sorry bruce dickinson is touring to promote his tattooed millionaire album so he's out of iron maiden trying to establish a solo career and uh i'm a huge iron maiden fan and i know that he's performing at a club so i realize i might have a chance to intercept him at a club because arena security is basically you know good luck so I go to the venue, and the reason this is brought to my attention, the reason I'm bringing this up is because I was just reminded that uh, my all-time favorite album, The Number of the Beast by Iron Maiden, just turned 39 years old. So the reason I bring this up is because in the picture, I'm standing next to Bruce Dickinson, and I'm holding my vinyl copy of The Number of the Beast that my grandmother bought me for Christmas one year. And I've always found the irony of that to be funny. So underneath my Christmas tree, courtesy of my Nana, um, is Iron Maiden's The Number of the Beast on Christmas. And I just, you know, that's what grandmas do, right? Just how- Man, na your Nana kicks ass. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So- um, I had the album under the tree for Christmas. I was thrilled to get it because my grandmother would buy me anything, kiss, anything, iron, anything I wanted, you know, when it was a holiday or a birthday or whatever, she went out of her way. You're, you're Nana's favorite, bro. 
Yeah. <laughs> well, I was her first grandchild, so maybe there that's something to do. Yeah. But uh, anyway, so I've got the vinyl copy of The Number of the Beast. I take it down to sound check. Uh, again, going back to the photo, I've got, I'm wearing my Iron Maiden Peace of Mind Tour t-shirt. I'm wearing these big sunglasses and I bump into Bruce and Bruce has his hair pulled back in a ponytail and he's wearing a baseball cap pulled down over his eyes. And he's wearing this t-shirt that I, I came to realize after the fact is actually the same shirt that he's wearing in the video for Holy Smoke, the Iron Maiden song. Wow. So if you see that video, he's wearing like a, it's kind of a reddish pinkish kind of color. And there's a little like a fencing logo of some sort or a mascot or something because, you know, Bruce Dickinson is into fencing. And uh, he... Oh, I'm he, sure he's a fencing champion. Well, I think he was semi-pro, almost Olympic level at one point I, in his career. I, I rest my case, among other things. We could do a five-hour episode on the things that all are that are all Bruce Dickinson. Yeah, yeah. If we shall, just for fun. yeah. So he uh, he steps outside. I, I I'm standing there. I'm waiting for him. I hand him my album. He signs it. And it, you know the album cover, of course, the artwork on Number of the Beast is very busy. Uh, but if you look closely in the upper right hand corner, his name it says to Dave Bruce Dickinson. He wrote it sideways because I guess he grabbed the album at an angle, and so it's kind of sideways going up the side. But um, I still have it to this day. It's framed and hanging in my house. And it's the same exact copy that my Nana bought me for Christmas that was waiting for me under the Christmas tree. And uh, I just wanted to say happy 39th to my all-time favorite album. It was my favorite album the minute I heard it. And it continues to be my favorite album to this day. So at this point, I don't see anything ever coming along to, to steal the throne from Iron Maiden's The Number of the Beast. That's uh, pretty incredible. Um, just just before we go, uh, thanks for sharing that. Um, I've seen that photo many times. I know it's your pride and joy, <laughs> among many other of your collectible uh, memorabilia. Uh, when was the first time you met Paul Diano? Uh, the first time, the first and only time, I believe, uh, he was touring with Killers. So um, it's post-Maiden, way post-Maiden. Uh, I'm going to say, let's see, it was at the Showcase Event Center in San Antonio. I hadn't quite started college yet. So I'm going to say it was 88, 89, 90, something like that. Mm. Yeah. Mm. And so yeah, uh, so he signed the he signed the early albums, so I have those. Yeah. And then Bruce signed uh The Number of the Beast and I you know, couldn't have been more thrilled because it's my all-time favorite album and now it's signed by the singer and it was nice. a great chance to uh to to bump into him and say hello and get that photo taken. So I've uh I've never met Bruce, but I've met Paul Diano. Yeah. And I met Paul Diano on my very first date with my wife. Oh, wow. So it's very special. I have the set list. He was touring. That would have been uh, 2010, I believe. 
he was touring just Paul Diano from Iron Maiden, I believe. Right. And he had the band Icarus Witch. Yeah, yeah. Uh, as his backup band. And, yeah. and he was doing, uh, you know, select numbers from the first two records and uh, some of his solo stuff. And I think he did, I think he did Faith Healer by Alex Harvey. Uh, I think he did, he did some other stuff. Um, his voice was shot. It wasn't the greatest show. I had still, no one cared. He was yeah. having a good time. He was smoking and drinking on stage. He was just having a good time, but his voice was just shot. That's what he was doing backstage when I met him. Yeah, he, he does that. He does that on stage and backstage. Yeah, uh, I think that he's kind of you know uh, sort of kind of done at this point. Uh, I don't think that he's very healthy at this point. But yeah. God bless him for being a, a the actual genesis of uh, of Iron Maiden. One of the greatest metal bands of all time. And those first two albums that he did are every bit as important as anything that came afterwards that sold many more copies. Uh, you know, you could argue that those first two Iron Maiden albums are the holy grail. And I wouldn't put up much of a fight as much as I, you know, I'm, I'm loyal to Number of the Beast. But man, you can't go wrong with that self-titled Maiden album. Yeah. Yeah, Prowler, Phantom of the Opera, and then uh, Killers, Wrathchild, Murders in the Rue Morgue. I, I'll stop. I'll stop there because I can. And yeah. it's amazing. It yeah. all, right. Yeah. <laughs> well, there's more, but you know, <laughs> but wait, there's yeah. more. Yeah. All right. Well, man, this was a good. This was a good time today. I enjoyed uh, hearing your uh, your your record selections and uh, and your story about uh, meeting Paul Diano. Uh, we'll do this again soon. Uh, for all of you listening out there, I remind you, please, uh, hit the subscribe button on YouTube, uh, check us out on Spotify, check us out on iTunes and leave your comments and questions and suggestions and corrections <laughs> on yeah. Facebook. Uh, we're always open to that. And, uh, also don't forget talklouder.com. You can get your coffee mugs, t-shirts, uh, merchandise at that website, talklouderpodcast.com. Let me correct myself, talklouderpodcast.com. Until next time, I am Metal Dave Glesner, along with my co-host, Jason McMaster, and we'll talk to you next time on the Talk Louder Podcast. <laughs>